The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Well, good morning, Downtown Church. It's good to be with you here today. Uh, We have come to that time of year around the country when kids are trying to get as close to the fireworks as possible without getting burned. I know this because I hear the fireworks constantly in my neighborhood. I know this because I see the kids running up and down the street. But I also know this because my hands have the scars from when I was a kid trying to see how close I could get to the fireworks before they blew up. This is a weird thing. Fireworks, like fire in general, is dangerous. It burns us. It can hurt. And yet we are so attracted to it. We want to get close to it. It draws us in. It is dangerous but it also pulls us deeply in our desires to want to get closer. Well, this morning, as we continue our series on rest, we've come to a book of the Bible that needs no introduction because it's one of your very favorites, the book of Leviticus. And in this book of Leviticus, we are introduced to a God who is holy and whose holiness is a lot like that fire that I was just talking about. God's holiness is his very being, his fiery otherness, his holy presence that when people encounter it, they desperately want to get closer to, and yet which is also terrifying and threatens to destroy them if they get too close without proper precaution. The book of Leviticus introduces us to a God whose holiness is his delight and his danger, And this is intensified because in Leviticus, we are told the goal of the life of faith is for this holy God to dwell with us. And so the problem that Leviticus is facing, as one scholar puts it, is how the people will arrange their lives so that they can host in their midst the radical holiness of God the radical holiness that delights them, that draws them in, and that will destroy them if they are not careful. And Leviticus's answer to how we host in our midst the radical holiness of God is pretty simple to understand, even if it's difficult to do. It's very simple. Leviticus tells us, God is holy, therefore you will be holy as God is holy. The only way to dwell with a holy God is to become holy. And all of Leviticus, even the weird stuff, is obsessed with the idea of how we become holy. Sometimes uh, it's telling the people of God, you're going to separate yourselves from the nations in the way you eat. Sometimes it's telling the people, you're going to be holy like God is holy by treating people the way he treats people. For instance, in Leviticus 19, by loving the refugee like you love yourself. But in our text this morning, we learn that another the way the community becomes holy so that it can host God's holiness is by entering into holy time, by making time holy. Most famously in the Old Testament through the Sabbath day, where God's people are called to recognize one day as holy by ceasing from their work, by spending time with one another and with God. But in our text this morning, we're looking not at the Sabbath day, but how that Sabbath day spills over into Sabbath years. So here Leviticus 25, 1 through 7, introduces us to one of God's strategies of holiness, the Sabbath year. 
Now the Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields. For six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Don't sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your intended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident or refugee who lives among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. This, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so we've been introduced to Leviticus 25, 1 through 7, the sabbatical year. Let's take a closer look, and then let's talk about four things that this Sabbath year teaches us about rest today. Now, as I said before, if the Sabbath day is a day off for us, the first thing we learn about the Sabbath year is that the Sabbath year is not a day off for us. It's a year off for the land. The land itself, the text tells us, must observe or celebrate a Sabbath to the Lord. And the very next verse in 25.3 clarifies how this is going to happen. This passage is written to people who are farmers, who survive by running little farm businesses on plots of land given to them by God. And the text tells us that six years they work that land like any other farmer. There's planting and sowing and harvesting and reaping and plowing, right? Business as usual on the good land that God gives. But one year out of seven, that all stops, And the land itself gets a year off. No organized planting and harvesting. The land itself rests, if you like, from its labor. But when the land celebrates this year-long Sabbath to Yahweh, look what else happens. The people get a year-long paid vacation. Because they can't work in the fields as normal, They can't work as normal. They get a whole year off. And in that year, they eat what comes up of itself from their land. No organized planting and harvesting. They just eat what comes up, right? What the land produces all on its own in this Sabbath year. It's a little bit confusing in the text. It seems like there's a tension. In verse 5, it says, don't reap or harvest. And then in verse 6, it says, what comes up will be yours for food. And what Leviticus seems to be saying is, you're not allowed to work it as usual. No business as usual. No managers and entry-level employees. This year, you kind of spontaneously and sporadically head out when you're hungry and pick out what comes out all of its own. So the land gets the Sabbath, so you get a year off. No business as usual. And then the text specifies, as the Old Testament almost always does when it talks about the Sabbath, who gets this paid vacation? Well, it's you, and the you there is presumably the Israelite family that owns the access to the land, the business owners and their family, but it's not just you. It's the male and female servants. Those are people who'd gone into such extreme debt that the only way they could survive is by becoming attached to your household. Not just you and your 
debt servants, but also your hired workers, the people you pay, the people who would suffer tremendously if the business shut down for a year and they didn't have access to food some other kind of way. And even the sojourner, that is the refugee, the person from outside who's had to come to where you are and can only survive with you. In other words, the CEO to the most newly arrived nobody all get the vacation and all get the fruit of the land. And not just them, your livestock, the cattle, uh, sheep, and goats that you work with who are your non-human co-laborers, and even the wild animals who contribute nothing to your life but who hang around, they too have access. In other words, everything that breathes on this plot is blessed by the year-long vacation. That's the Sabbath year. What does it tell us about how we become holy through rest in our world today? Four things. First, this Sabbath year shows us that Sabbath rest is real. It shows us that Sabbath rest is real. You see, these farmers were tempted to believe that the only way to survive was through their endless work. They were tempted to believe that they were responsible for their livelihood, that the way the world works is you grind it out so you can get some. And God says, no, once every seven years, you're going to remember this land, my land, produces all by itself. Just like when God feeds them with manna in the wilderness, when there was no other way to survive, God shows them, no, I have created the world such that it provides all on its own. I don't need you. You don't need you. The land doesn't need you. This is the way the world is against all appearances. We can rest, the text tells us, because rest is real, because rest is written into the fabric of, of the world that God has made. And because rest is written into the fabric of the world that God has made, when we recognize rest, it's good for us, it's good for the land, it's good for the people who depend for their economic livelihood on us, it's good for the animals that we partner with, it's good with the created order in general. Rest, the text is telling us, begins when we recognize that the world doesn't need us, doesn't survive by our efforts, but provides by the lavish generosity of God, not least as God gives us this incredibly fertile, abundant, life-giving planet and place to live on. Rest is real. Now, I'm sure these farmers doubted this truth. Bear in mind, these are people who only survive, they only live if it rains regularly on their farms. There is no Walmart if the crop does poorly. They cannot go to the grocery store. If the crop does not come up, people suffer. If it doesn't come up again and again, people die. They depend on the rain. Scholars tell us the rain only would fail three years out of every 10. These people are vulnerable. These people are on the edge. These people do not have a 401k. They have no backup. I'm sure when God said, take a year off, the family farms had some accountant who brought out their profit and loss statements and said, I'm sorry, sir, we cannot afford. And God said, fire the accountant. We're taking a year off. That's how I've designed my world. Whether you can tell or not, walk in my ways. Sabbath rest is real. But secondly, Sabbath rest is given and received in concrete, social, and economic terms. Rest here is given and received 
in concrete social and economic terms. In other words, the rest that God gives is more, but not less, than actual rest, than an actual break, than an actual time to indulge in ways that you don't always get to do. This is genuinely the world's first paid sabbatical policy, and it's real in concrete and economic terms. But don't get me wrong, I started out by telling you that this Sabbath rest is all about an encounter with the Holy One. The big goal here is to dwell with God. It is that we might live alongside the Holy One. Abraham Joshua Heschel, the rabbinic scholar, is right. The Sabbath teaches all beings whom to praise. It's all about God. And yet, because of who God is, it's all about also actual social economic stopping and breaking and resting. Received and given. God's people really do discover, as G.K. Chesterton put it, that it wasn't till people set aside a holy day for God that humanity first got a holiday for themselves. It's real. It's concrete. It involves social and economic policy and a genuine break. And this break is not only received, it has to be given Did you catch that? Rest is not only received by the you, it's given to all the people who depend on the you, right? The people receive a vacation from God, but then they have to pass along that break to everybody, including the most vulnerable and creation itself. Otherwise, it's not the rest that God's talking about. This is a part of the Sabbath that we have missed, in my experience, in the church, The Sabbath is not just about receiving, it's about giving, right? And this, by the way, is what keeps biblical Sabbath from degenerating into self-care. Self-care is a hot topic right now. You can listen to a million podcasts, watch a million TED Talks about self-care, and it's all good stuff. But on its own, you know what it turns into? Self-care turns deeply selfish, It's about how you individually set up boundaries so you can make sure that you don't get overstressed, largely by defending yourself against the needs and obligations of other people. That's not self-care. That's selfish. And the Bible defends against that, not by saying, well, everybody should work all the time, but by saying rest is received and it is given. It is received and it is given. It is received in concrete social and economic terms. And it is shared in concrete, social, and economic terms. But third, so Sabbath rest is real. It has to be given and received in concrete economic terms. Third, Sabbath rest requires us to stop acting like owners. Sabbath rest teaches us to stop acting like owners. When we, when we refuse to rest, and particularly when we refuse to positively obey God's command to rest, we demonstrate that we see our lives and the stuff we own as ours to do with as we please. Resting is a sign that we know nothing belongs to us. That's why just a few verses later in this chapter, God says it specifically, the land is mine. And you, the same you that has to rest, are sojourners and immigrants with me on it. Now, again, we're not farmers. That doesn't, like, punch 
quite the way it should. That's like God walking into the CEO suite at like FedEx or some or, or Amazon and saying, hey, by the way, CEO, this company is mine and you are a temporary day worker on a part-time contract in it. I don't think they get talked to very much like that, those CEOs. And I don't think we let people talk to us like that where we feel like we have ownership in our life. And yet God says, it's mine. And you gotta, you gotta think like that. You gotta recognize that I own everything. And not just think like that, you have to practice this surrender of ownership. Think about what happens in this year off. Six years, the boss is in charge. He gives directions to the debt servants and the hired hands. They explain to the newly arrived refugee what to do. It's, it's like memos, right? It's like punching your card when you get to work. Six years, the org chart is intact. In one seventh year, everybody is on the same level. Everyone is just one gatherer alongside another gatherer. How long is the big boss on the warehouse floor with the newest arrived employee in our economy? Not all that often. In Israel, for an entire year out of every seven, everybody's shoulder to shoulder doing the exact same thing, the exact same way. And this is even more profound when you realize this text comes after Leviticus 19, where God says, hey, farmers, don't harvest your fields all the way to the edges so that the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor can come provide for themselves by gleaning, by gathering the leftovers in your field. That's a good law. But do you see what's happening here in the Sabbath year? Everybody's a gleaner. Everybody's a refugee. Everybody's an immigrant. Gleaning and gathering only because the one who really owns Everything is a good, generous king who makes the everything he owns available to all. Sabbath rest requires us to stop acting like owners. And fourth, Sabbath rest requires us to embrace a community rule. I bet you like that idea of a paid vacation, right? But, but note what, you know, a year-long one, pretty cool, huh? But note what the text does not say. It does not say to the people of God, hey, I, God, own everything. I'm in charge. You can trust me. The world is abundant. Rest is good for you. So figure that out, will you? It doesn't say, I, God, uh, am in charge and rest is good for you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend a lot of time in prayer. And then as the spirit moves you, I want you to discern for yourselves how you rest. No, God says, six years you work, this one you stop. That's the hallmark of a lot of the Sabbath legislation. It tells you what to do and when to do it. We hate that. And we don't understand it. Listen to what Judith Shulevitz says about this aspect of the Sabbath. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily. This is why the Puritans and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of the will. It requires a surprisingly strenuous amount of effort, one that has to be bolstered by habit and by social sanction. In other words, if you really want rest, 
where even the most vulnerable don't slip through the cracks. You need a community that's got a habit and a practice, a way of saying, this is how we do it. And holding one another accountable when we fail. It requires a community rule. And if we zoom out to what the Old Testament says about Sabbath as a whole, that community rule is about limits on daily work, limits on weekly work. It's about cycles of years. It's about cycles that run the course of a human lifetime. It's about bringing all of our calendar under the generous rule of God. And you get that together or not at all. So four things it teaches us. Rest is real. Rest has to be given and received in concrete social and economic terms. Rest requires us to stop acting like owners. And rest requires us to follow a community rule. What in the world would those four teachings of the Sabbath year say to us today? Well, first of all, if Sabbath rest is real, we have to help one another see the world that way. Right? Does your life, your economic and social life, feel like a place of abundance where God is generously taking care of you and you can take their hands off the wheel and you don't have to control everything and you don't? Does that how your economic and social life feels like? That's not how my life feels. That's certainly not how these farmers' lives feel. God says, let me tell you what the world's like. I produce, I deliver, I distribute, in no way dependent on you. You can rest, you can take a break. And the only way that we will live like that is if we remind ourselves that that's the way the world is. We will only live this way if when we're in community group or when we're talking to one another, especially about money and our jobs and our fears, we will only live this way if we remind one another. Do you remember God is the creator who wrote generosity and abundance and rest into the fabric of the universe? We'll only live this way if we return again and again and again and again that show us in the scriptures a world that is not dog eat, dog eat, dog eat, but is God on his throne giving good gifts to his people. We'll only live this way if we return in worship again and again and again to say, yes, to discover again, he is a good, good father. To hear the testimonies of the saints, God has provided. We only get this rest if we live in this world that's real. And we'll only live in this real world if we have the courage to remind each other what the world is like rather than what it looks like. When the money in the bank is short, when it feels like you gotta keep moving and it can never stop. And if Sabbath rest is about receiving and giving rest in concrete social and economic terms, we have to receive and give rest in concrete social and economic terms, not like agrarian farmers in 1000 BCE, but like 21st century friends and neighbors in a knowledge economy today. We have to imaginatively figure out what does it mean to receive rest for ourselves and give rest to ourselves, others, with all the concrete social and economic implications of this Sabbath year. And the bad news is we're bad at this. You know, if you're in the group, in the room, that has paid vacation, statistics show that 75% of you don't use all of your paid vacation. Three out of four of us in this room, if we've got paid vacation, according to the stats, don't use it all. 15 out of 100 of us with paid vacation don't use any at all. And that doesn't even count for the fact that you're carrying your work with you every day, everywhere you go, right? So 
we have to figure out what it looks like for me in my life and you in your life to say no to relentless work, to relentless activity, to never-ending tasks. We've got to receive it in our own lives. And then we've got to figure out how to give it to others. And what I want to say about that is two things. If you're a part of the other group in our society, not the society that has been offered rest but won't take it, but the part of our society for whom work is at such low wages or of such poor quality or structured so that it's never ending or so poor that you have to hold down three or four jobs to work. If you are showing up in our society in your economic life and you cannot rest, I wanna say this strongly, you are being sinned against. That's unjust. In God's world, work that is good is work that can be walked away from at least one day in seven and larger rhythms than that. So if you are in that position, this text invites you to lift your voice, to cry out to God for help, and to cry out to your community for intervention. Take the rest if you're being offered it. Cry out for the rest if you're being denied it. And then all of us figure out how to give the rest to those who depend on us economically and socially in our lives. If you're in a workplace where you have something to say, about the structure of other humans at work, what they get paid, when they come in, when they're given time off. You have a God-given obligation to receive rest for yourselves in ways that will make you feel lazy when compared to your peers, and then to give that rest to others. And of course, that includes CEOs and managers and HR people, but it also includes you teachers and you lawyers and you people who are on a team who by your example often tell your people around you, that they can't stop. Who work and create a work culture by the way that you work that says, this better be done by Monday when you know it can't be done by Monday unless it's worked for the 48 hours between Friday and Monday. You by your example. We pastors by our example. If we by our example are imposing on those who look up to us that we can never stop, we are sinning. We're committing injustice. And we've got to receive rest and give it. A few years ago, talking about this same topic, I said that it didn't matter who you thought you were working for, Christian ministry or whatever. If you can't stop, you're not working for God, you're working for Pharaoh. That's what I said like four or five years ago in a sermon on Exodus. Now I wanna tell you, if you can't stop, you're not just working for Pharaoh, you are Pharaoh to somebody else. And the sabbatical year says, if God is on his throne, we don't act like Pharaoh to others. So we gotta receive rest where we can and give rest where we can. And if we're gonna do any of that, because we don't live 3,000 years ago on a farm in Israel, because the law is not imposed on us today the way it was on them, if we're gonna do any of that, we're gonna need a community rule, but we're gonna have to sort that out together. None of that is gonna happen that I just said unless we don't come together with certain we's, other we's, <laughs> and talk about what does it look like to receive rest from God and give it to others? In other words, this sermon goes nowhere unless you and your household and me and my family don't gather around our tables and say, look, if we don't pay attention, work will encroach on every aspect of our lives. What are we gonna do about it? What's the rhythm? When do we say no? When do we put the phone away? When do we refuse to work no matter what? 
It's not going to happen unless you and your community group and in your circle of friends don't say, hey, what do we have to be doing in our lives to help one another say yes to Sabbath rest regularly and relentlessly and costly sacrificial ways? All that stuff I said about the marketplace and the teachers and whatever, that's not going to happen unless some of you who are responsible in similar ways in this room don't grab the people who are around you and say, hey, look, we're all teachers here. Say, hey, we're all in HR here. What does it look like to hear this message today? What does it look like? How do, we, how do we do this together? Unless we do that, we will not experience the rest that God has for us because rest is a community affair. You get it together or not. And, and again, remember, the reason is because if it's not a community affair, it becomes selfish self-care, right? If it's just you on your own figuring it out. Think about all the people who are left out. Typically, it's the modern-day equivalents of the male and female debt slaves, the refugee, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the domestic animals. That's who gets left out if we don't do it together. We'll gather as a church and discern together how we do this or we won't. Now, I know that that sounds like a lot of work to get rest, which is part of the point, right? I mean, our, our, uh, God says, and when he's giving them the manna thing, I'm gonna give you twice as much on Friday. You gotta cook what you wanna eat on Sunday, on, fri- on Saturday, on Friday, right? So rest always takes work. It always takes prep. But I imagine some of you around the table today going like, man, that sounds like a lot of burden. That sounds like a lot of stuff to do. I don't know how I'm gonna rest with Jesus if I'm spending all this time harassing my friends about what rules we gotta follow. And I was worried about that this week as I tried to listen to this text with us. And I imagined an Israelite farmer from 1000 BC sitting at my table while I made similar complaints. And I imagined that Israelite farmer saying to me, listening to me complain about how much work this would be. I imagined him saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you not know that no group of people on the planet ever had regular rhythms of rest given them by their God until our God showed up and said, I love you so much. I want to ensure you all get a break. Are you kidding me? The God of the universe not only tells you how he created the world, but welcomes you to walk in it. And you're going to treat like that like a chore? I imagine this Israelite farmer saying, have you forgotten what the point of the whole thing is? Have you forgotten that our fathers and mothers were slaves in Egypt, that they were some, some oppressed by never-ending work, no break, and that the God of heaven and earth, by a sheer act of grace, apart from law, before we had done anything good or bad, came into the dark night, gave us an abundance and made us his people, and offer to dwell with us in all of his holy glory and majesty and to give us a way to abide by the scorching light of his presence and not be consumed? Did you not know that that was what this is all about? Why would you say no to that? Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that God has done all of it it takes to come into our dark night of slavery to sin and oppression and death and to bring us out and to graciously offer us a way to live with him in his holiness, to live with our neighbor in justice, and to live in his world with abundance. 
and rest stands at the center of all of it. This word, this hard, costly word, is a word of grace given by the God of the universe in love. So let us draw near to him in worship and praise. Let us offer him the allegiance that he deserves. Let us find ourselves transformed into his holiness by his holiness. And let us discover how to live out the restful, abundant way of life that he offers us. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we are aware that you have done abundantly more than we could ask or even imagine. You have intervened in the never-ending, never-stopping slavery that we impose on ourselves and on others and even the slavery of sin that we willingly submit to. God, you have come into that, you have liberated us from that, and you have welcomed us into a generous good way. Help us to come to you. Help us to walk with you in the glorious light of your life this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we continue in worship, if you are a citizen of God's kingdom who knows that he is the owner of everything, Would you join me in worshiping God by giving generously back to him what is his and that he has given us so that we might worship him with it? Let's continue our worship and giving.